This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Neil Buddy Shah, co-founder and executive director of ID Insight, an organization that helps clients generate and rigorously test evidence to improve social impact. ID Insight works with governments, NGOs, and other investors to create and implement large-scale interventions so that money and manpower go to programs that actually work. The effort has created more efficient public and private institutions in numerous developing countries in Asia and Africa, and has seen steady growth since its launch. Buddy, it, and can I call you Buddy? Is that a, yeah, please do, David. Great. Buddy is, an, is a graduate of Harvard University, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and also Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's also an Echoing Green Fellow and a Rainer Arnold, Arnold Fellow and was recently recognized by Forbes as a leading social entrepreneur under 30 years old. Buddy, it's great to be with you today. Great to be with you as well, David. I'd like to begin by asking you how you first became interested in international development, and, and in particularly in helping to understand how to evaluate program effectiveness. That's in, I've worked over the, uh, many years with evaluators, and um, they don't all come to that interest in the same way. So if you could tell your story, uh, that would be terrific. Absolutely. So, David, I'll start off with kind of my personal journey to international development uh, and then talk a little bit more specifically about how I got excited about the potential role of evaluation to really improve uh, the impact of all the money that we're spending in development programs. So I grew up in a small town in rural Pennsylvania, in northeast Pennsylvania, outside of the Scranton, Wilkes-Barre area. And, uh, you know, in that, in that context, often felt pretty far removed from the rest of the world. But my parents are actually uh, immigrants of Indian origin from East Africa, from Tanzania and Zanzibar. And so growing up, uh, you know, it was really inculcated with the sense of being part of a larger global community. Uh, and I think the fact that they were also immigrants, first um, of Indian origin to East Africa and then uh, to the U.S., really uh, imbued myself and all of my siblings with the kind of sense of global citizenship. And growing up, we'd spend uh, quite a bit of time going back to uh, East Africa and to India, visiting family. And uh, one of the things that I think really became apparent to me later in life, but it was really those early experiences traveling to East Africa and India with my family, was that our position and our opportunities uh, in society really are morally arbitrary in a sense, or accidents of birth. And this really came to a head when I was uh, a freshman at Harvard reading John Rawls' A Theory of Justice, uh, which is you know, one of the most prominent books on political philosophy in the uh, written in the 1970s, and the thing that struck me about his argument was that everything that we have in society, uh, our individual positions in society, are largely accidents of birth. So whether or not we're born in a rich country or a poor country, whether we're born to in a supporting family environment, whether we have great educational opportunities, even whether we're smart, and even whether we're hardworking, um, there's a lot of evidence that you know, diligence or motivation is both genetically um, driven as well as obviously um, based on our environment. And so all these factors, uh, and he makes a very compelling case for why, you know, we think that, oh, I deserve to be X, Y, or Z because of my hard work. But in fact, there's so many contextual factors that are really out of our control that determine the opportunities that we have in life. And as a result, um, while reading that book, I would just think back to family members, cousins, and friends that we had in East Africa and India who could have been just as intelligent as I was, just as hardworking, um, but would never have the opportunities that I had, or at least would have to work far, far harder uh, to get access to the same opportunities that I had. And that, to me, seemed fundamentally unfair. Uh, and so that combination of my upbringing as well as uh, really being moved by this 
powerful work of political philosophy. At that point, uh, there's really nothing that I, I thought I could do other than work towards expanding the capabilities of, of people around the world to really pursue what they had reason to value. Um, and so it was at that stage early on in college that I decided that um, I wanted to devote my career to international development uh, so that as many people had um, the opportunities to realize their full potential as possible and try to erase these kind of arbitrary uh, distinctions based on just the luck of the draw. Um, and so that's the kind of mo deeper motivation for why I went into international development. Uh, and then I had an early experience, uh, several experiences working with NGOs uh, and governments in India during and after college. And one of the things that I observed, and obviously you have to take observations from someone who's still in college or just after college with a heavy dose of salt, but um, was that there are many well-intentioned leaders out there, both in the social sector and the public sector. Um, that wanted to make good decisions, but actually lacked the evidence to figure out what was actually working and what wasn't. Um, and so you saw a lot of people making decisions based on either gut instinct or anecdotal evidence from their own experiences in the field, but not necessarily with access to uh, rigorous evidence on what was actually working and what wasn't, and then the capabilities to make decisions based on that. Uh, and and that's you know the early phases of how I got interested in impact evaluation and how it can be used to really make better decisions and improve the lives of the disenfranchised or, or low-income individuals. And I can get into later kind of how that developed into ID Insight, but sure. um, that was my initial path to both development and then specifically to, to the role of impact evaluation. I know you studied uh, uh, economics, I guess, at Harvard, and then uh, you actually uh, trained to be a physician. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering about uh, that exposure to economics. Um, I've done a lot of thinking and reading about economics, and a lot of people argue about, you know, the scientific nature of uh, of the study of economics right. and uh, and then also of course in the, in the medical field we see a lot of uh, focus on science and and um, the evaluation of clinical practices and I'm wondering um, how that experience informed your interest in in the work that you do now can you do you see any pathways out of that at this point absolutely I mean I just say first of all that you know I, I trained as a physician um, but ultimately now I spend most of my time working on policies uh, for governments, NGOs, and social businesses. Uh, and I think the reason I made that switch first is that when I was initially practicing in underserved areas, it's very rewarding on some level because you see a tangible impact of the work that you're doing in you know, helping a specific patient. But after a while, it got pretty frustrating. Um, you know, you see patient after patient come in with the same types of problems and you think, you know, a lot of these are really driven by social or economic inequities and that if those could be addressed, a significant portion of your patients would just never have to come in the first place. And I think that the economics training I had in undergrad really informed that view of the clinical work I did and ultimately, you know, convinced me that my interests, my strengths, uh, my passions were more aligned with thinking about these broader structural challenges. Uh, to poverty and inequality. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, the interaction between medical field and economics uh, and the field of impact evaluation, obviously uh, the medical field is uh, far ahead of economics discipline and thinking about how to use rigorous impact evaluation, specifically randomized controlled trials, to figure out the true effectiveness of a medication. Um, and, you know, I saw that it's just such a well-developed ecosystem within medicine for all its flaws around figuring out which treatments work and which don't. And there hasn't been, at least you know, until recently, that same level of rigor and systematic thinking about how do we build a, a knowledge base around what works and what doesn't in development and then apply that to, make, to guide specific decisions. And obviously, you know, there are a lot of areas in which it's easier to test the effectiveness of drugs because there's more uniformity in human physiology than there is in, you know, human societies. And so you have to be careful about extrapolating uh, this kind of research in the economics or social science space to other geographies and times the way that you might be able to do in medicine. But still, there were it was clear that medicine's made so much progress in terms of evidence-based decision making 
uh, and that there's potential huge gains to apply that worldview to um, economic development institutions as well. That's fascinating. Now, did did some of that formulative, I guess you could say, development in your interest in evaluation science, did some of that also take place at the Kennedy School? I mean, is that where you gathered with other people interested in this? Or uh, yeah. I'm just trying to... Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, I see those were all early ideas, but it, it all came to a head and was really crystallized through two experiences. One was um, I had worked after undergrad uh, before my clinical training in medical school. I had worked for an organization called the MIT uh, Jamil Poverty Action Lab. Okay. Um, which was one of the pioneers in using randomized controlled trials to test the effectiveness of social policies in developing countries. Um, and so that's where I really got my first exposure to rigorously evaluating the effectiveness of, of development programs. Um, and it was a phenomenal experience, very formative in a number of ways. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously the MIT Poverty Action Lab has done a tremendous amount of good work. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed was that there was still a huge percentage of development actors that weren't served by the randomized controlled trials that MIT's Poverty Action Lab had started to popularize. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is that, you know, there are just so many development actors and the MIT Poverty Action Lab is relatively small. But also that um, there's a difference between uh, an academic approach to answering these questions uh, and that tends to be more around testing concepts and ideas in order to build a global knowledge base, which is really important, um, but less around using these powerful tools, these powerful impact evaluation tools to guide specific decisions for specific actors in a specific context. Um, So think of it as an academic tool to generate knowledge versus a client service or consulting tool to help an actual decision maker on the ground make uh, an informed programmatic decision. Um, And so out of that experience, I had these ideas. And then really it was at the Kennedy School when I met my other co-founders that we started talking about these ideas. Um, and the Kennedy School, that the educational way of thinking, uh, really blends two things. I think it, it takes and teaches the most powerful academic methods, um, but then embeds them in the reality of political and administrative constraints that exist in developing countries. Uh, and so we're trained and really thought very critically about, you know, we can't just think about what's the technically correct solution but how does that interplay with political realities and how does that interplay with bureaucratic constraints that a lot of uh, and implementation constraints that a lot of uh, developing countries face. Uh, and so it was through that experience at the Kennedy School getting a much finer understanding of how these powerful academic tools could be used in a meaningful way to shape policy uh, and constantly thinking about not just how to run a good study, but how do you use that to really influence change? Um, and so that education was certainly uh, critical in, in this path. Uh, and, and I can talk more later about how the founding team came together while at the Kennedy School as well. That's great. I think that's a, that is truly a fascinating boundary, the line between sort of studying something to gain knowledge versus then entering the field as an actor and trying to actually use what you know to make changes in the world and then, you know, becoming, uh, having to deal with the reality of uh, being part of the system that you're trying to change, Get, taking off your academic hat and putting on your entrepreneur hat where you actually enter the arena, so to speak. Right. Um, it's a fascinating, um, presents a fascinating series of problems. One of the things that I'd, I'd love you to talk about, actually, uh, because I think many of our listeners may not really understand the emergent nature of evaluation science and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the fact that some of this is really quite novel in the world, uh, maybe less than 20 years old in terms of people seriously using scientific models to um, look at, at social interventions. And, and particularly if you could talk about this, uh, you know, do you think there are leading thinkers in this area? Are there people who you look to as a source of uh, philosophical or methodo- methodological knowledge and I'd love it. I know this is an extremely long question, but I, mm-hmm. I think you're up to it. Um, also, the 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 idea of a theory of change and how that 
is part of a necessary part of understanding evaluation science. Um, if you could c comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. So first, just to touch on the emergence of evaluation science in international development. Um, obviously, there are a lot of interpretations for why this has emerged so powerfully over the last 10 years. But uh, my own reading of kind of ec uh, the history of economics and, and development is that there's a huge debate um, you know, in the 80s and 90s uh, around the effectiveness of aid and government spending in developing countries. Um, and not just a huge debate around it, but great frustration with uh, the returns that we're seeing from all this money being spent. Uh, and you know, there are a couple of high-profile World Bank publications, I think in the 90s, but I'm not 100% sure, that essentially said, you know, we spent all this money in all these programs, very few have been rigorously evaluated, and we actually don't know what the impact of each of these programs are on the outcomes that they were set out uh, to solve. And so in this, con in this context, um, you know, there are some camps that were growing increasingly nihilistic about our ability to affect change in developing countries um, and essentially called for, um, you know, the uh, withdrawal of foreign aid. But I think even more important than foreign aid, because that's a relatively small percentage of all development spending, I think. You know, the actual government spending, government of Nigeria or government of India ends up spending a lot more of their own tax revenue on development than international aid organizations. But even disillusionment with their ability to actually implement programs that work and know whether or not they're working. So it was in that context of, you know, maybe this is all for naught and there's really not much we can do uh, that the, there's a real rise of randomized controlled trials and development. Uh, and so just to lay out very briefly, the fundamental problem is if I implement a teacher training program and want to see whether that affects student learning outcomes, um, it's hard to say whether, and if we just look at test scores at the end of the year, it's hard to say whether it's because of that new teacher training program we did or whether it's because of any number of other um, things that are going on in the environment. Maybe that area suddenly you know, got new jobs because a new factory came into town. And so the parents had more money to spend on children's education um, or that the children were eating better as a result. And so, you know, they were able to study more and, and get better test scores or that the school was trying another program in addition to teacher training. Um, and it was really that second program that was driving the effects rather than teacher training. So in that context where so many different things are happening, it's hard to isolate the effectiveness of any given intervention and to know whether or not we should put more money behind it. Um, and so that's precisely what randomized controlled trials or rigorous impact evaluation solves. It tells us, you know, what would have happened in the absence of our program. And so you have one group which gets the program, let's call it a teacher training program, and another group that is a comparison or control group. Um, and that group is as similar as possible on average as the, as the treatment group. And so any differences you see between those two groups, the one that got the program and the one that didn't, you can attribute to our program and know that that's the impact of it. And the real key that what randomization does is that um, because you're randomly selecting who goes in the treatment group and who goes in the comparison group, um, on average, those two groups are going to be exactly the same in both observable characteristics and unobservable. So you'll probably have the same distribution of family income, the same distribution of the student's own motivation in the two groups, all these things which you just can't control for statistically normally are going to end up being balanced because you're just randomly choosing who goes into which group. Um, and so that's why it's so powerful. That's why it's used in medicine to see whether a drug is effective. Um, so that, that, um, that's kind of how it, how it arose and, and, and why it's so potentially powerful. Um, and David, sorry, that was a long response, but no, I, no, it's I forget the last two helpful. parts of the question. I, well, well, what I really wanted to ask is, and I think, you know, I se sense that this is part of what you do in ID Insight. And um, so I asked the question about it because oftentimes it seems to me that one of the most difficult things in looking at a, at a program evaluation is really understanding what exactly it is that you're trying to change and, and why and what your theory is of how it is because uh, otherwise you may be changing, you may be looking at the wrong thing. Um, 
and 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 to think clearly about that in a social situation, I think presents many challenges that are not actually the, the same or that are more complex in a social situation than they would be with a physical experiment. Mainly because perhaps the community of people thinking about it may be bringing such diverse ideas to the table. And I'm I'm curious about uh, your perspective on that. Um, you know, I've been in I've been doing this work for maybe 20 years, and it, it's interesting somewhere in that time frame, I would put it at about 10 years ago, people started to say, people started to talk about outcomes, they started to talk about logic models and to use this theory of change language. And and I'm interested in your perspective on where that comes from as somebody that's in there, you know, are there, are there intellectual, is there a, uh, you know, is there an Adam Smith of, of, uh, of evaluation science? Is there a Karl Marx of evaluation science? You know, where, and what do you believe uh, that people interested in this, where should they be looking um, for the best thinking about that? Yeah. Great, great question. Um, so in terms of theory of change, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, there might be an impulse to just come up with a program and then test it rigorously. But that's really not going to get us gains. And I think you're right that the first step always, including in ID Insight's own work, is to really map out a theory of change, um, especially in complex social situations. For example, we're working with the government of Bihar, which is a state of 110 million people in India, the poorest state in India. And we're working with the government on how to reduce corruption in a $300 million a year child feeding program. And so that's obviously a really complex social situation. Um, and so mapping out the theory of change, how do we expect this government program to ultimately reduce child malnutrition? And what are, who are all the different actors and all the different pieces that need to come together for this program to have that effect? And where might they fall apart? How do our interventions actually tackle those shortcomings in the theory of change? Um, and should we be doing other things? So I think that theory change is absolutely fundamentally necessary before jumping into any evaluation to understand the context. And that a good theory of change requires talking to a number of different actors. So it requires talking to the people on the ground that actually, you know, these are their communities. They know what they're doing. They know what works in a much more nuanced way than, you know, even a bureaucrat at a state level in India, but also talking to the bureaucrats because they understand the administration of these policies. And then bringing your own critical eye and, and um, knowledge of the global literature to inform what that theory of change looks like. The one big caveat I would say is that I've seen that organizations can get straightjacketed by the theory of change um, and you know adhere to it too strictly, even in the face of emerging information from the field, that maybe they need to adjust their initial hypotheses and assumptions. And so the one thing I'd say is that theory of change is an extremely important first step in designing and then evaluating programs, but that it should be treated as a fluid concept that's constantly updated based on uh, the information that you get from acting in the field. Um, and I think that's easily forgotten and that a lot of donor pressure makes that difficult to do because the flexibility is not built in to say halfway through a five-year program, listen, we've got all this new information and our initial hypotheses were wrong, so we need to adjust in these ways because of these reasons. Um, and I think that's critical. And then in, in terms of, you know, who are the kind of intellectual forefathers or foremothers of this space? Um, in the evaluation field in development, I would say certainly there are a group of economists, um, a lot of whom are affiliated with the Poverty Action Lab. Um, I'd say Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee at MIT, uh, Michael Kramer and Ted Mangala from Harvard and Berkeley, who did you know, one of the most powerful early experiments in Kenya around the effect of deworming pills on student education. Um, I'd say you know, those are the people that I look to, especially for methodological advances uh, in the space. But then I think it's important, uh, and I think that in terms of who are the most thoughtful uh, people in the space, especially in thinking about how to use these methods to actually generate change on the ground, I'd say Lant Pritchett uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard and Center for Global Development in D.C. Uh, is phenomenal in thinking through not just the technical side, but really how that interplays with the political and, and bureaucratic constraints that, you know, obviously you have to take into account if you actually want to drive change. 
um, to Lamp Pritchett. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of good work being done um, at uh, the Center for Global Development, which is a think tank in D.C., um, and also in parts of the World Bank's uh, research group. Um, and, and those are the, the places where I go to for both the methodological insights as well as thinking about the complex political situations in which we operate. Um, but the last thing I'd say is that, as with any field, it, it, and especially one that's so young, as you said, really in the last 10 years, this has started to become, um, gain more prominence, is to just be super critical about what everyone writes um, and says. Uh, because it's emerging quickly, there's still so many shortcomings, it hasn't reached its full potential, is to always have a super critical eye. Um, and in addition to those intellectual kind of forefathers of the space, Esther Duflo's, Abhijit Banerjee's, Michael Kramer's, and Lant Pritchett's, I think you have to pay as much attention to the actual policymakers, social entrepreneurs, and NGO leaders on the ground, because um, their perspective is super valuable and might end up getting lost out because they're just writing less because they're doing, uh, they're, they're doers fundamentally. But I think integrating those different perspectives is critical. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Neil Buddy Shaw, founding partner of ID Insight. I want to try to articulate a, a sort of methodological or philosophical question, which mm -hmm. I wonder if you've thought about this, and I'm, I'm sure you, ha you have because you're obviously immersed in this and very smart about it. But um, the question is really this. I think, you know, one of the, the fascinating things about this area is that social situations, unlike, for example, maybe physical systems, like mm -hmm. if you take like a social situation on one hand, and say, well, what's different about this than a physical body, mm -hmm. like the human body? And one of the things that's different, I think, is that social situations are highly fluid and evolve. So, yeah. you know, what happens is when people start intervening in social situations, they can quickly transform into something different than what they were. Yep. And so you have this problem of the, the um, experiment, the, the, the container for the experiment changing while the experiment is being conducted so to speak right. <laughs> you know yeah. and 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 then the other thing about this so that's one point the changeable nature of the thing that you're studying yeah. uh, and and perhaps the feedback loop that comes from that mm -hmm. uh, the the second thing that's interesting is that when you're talking about a theory of change you know w when we talk about theoretical structures we are often mm -hmm. talking about theories about reality about like you know things that don't change like things that things that um you know your theory of gravity or your theory mm -hmm. of some chemical interaction is usually pointing and trying to find something uh in the world that's stable you know what i'm saying yeah. that that's an unchangeable quality but when you start talking about a theory of change you're pointing at how i'm going to change this situation into something else which is highly dependent upon, say, uh, cultural values and norms and political philosophies and ideologies mm -hmm. and so, so on. So you're now sort of taking this science and you're projecting it into the future. You're, 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 you, it's like, I think the word that I've heard also used is action science. Like, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's now, it's about applying science to how the world is evolving Mm -hmm. As opposed to looking at stable qualities or interactions, things that, hey, when we throw a brick off of off the top of a building, you know, a hundred years from now, we assume that it's going to fall to earth in exactly the same way it did today and exactly the same way it did 5,000 years ago. 
Right. So, so um, does that present unique challenges, and how do you how do you grapple with some of that as as a uh, a person who's advising and designing studies in that context? Mm-hmm. David, that's a uh, phenomenal question, and uh, I think one that we grapple with all the time at ID Insight, and frankly, one that's not asked enough within the space. Uh, so I think you're 100% right that we can't treat these social situations that we're quote-unquote experimenting in um, in the same way that we can physical the physical body or physical processes in physics. Uh, because you're right, these aren't static laws of nature. Um, and they are fluid and evolving. And as we experiment and tinker, then those social situations and contexts and institutions adapt in response to what we're doing. So I agree 100%, 100% with, with kind of that diagnosis that you made of the differences. Um, but I'd say that there are kind of two, well, there are two broad ways that I approach that problem. The first is to think about how do we have more dynamic, iterative, and rapid feedback loops in studying these systems. So let me give you an example of an impact evaluation that I had worked on about nine years ago now when I was still at the Poverty Action Lab. So they were trying to decrease uh, nurse absenteeism in rural Rajasthan in India is a big problem. Um, so a lot of nurses just don't show up to the clinic and therefore people can't get care. So the intervention that the government and the Poverty Action Lab are testing was if we put in a date and time stamper that was kind of tamper proof and the nurses had to, um, you know, enter every time they came to the clinic and then their pay would be tied to that somehow, would that increase attendance and then increase health outcomes? Well, in the first four months, you see a spike in the increase of teacher attendance, uh, rather of of nurse attendance. And um, pretty soon they start to realize that the few nurses that weren't coming weren't getting penalized because the nurse lobby was actually pretty powerful in that state. And so the bureaucrats and politicians were afraid to dock the pay of nurses that didn't show up. And so pretty quickly, all other nurses start to realize that actually we have more power than we thought we had previously. And so you see a steady decline in nurse attendance after about four months. So it goes up and then it goes down and it continues going down to below the initial level of what they were before. And so this is a perfect example of exactly what you're saying that, you know, we experiment, try something new, and then the whole system changes around us because they get new information and that actually leads to worse outcomes. <laughs> that's, a great, um, that's a great example. Someone should write that up because it's a brilliant illustration of the challenges that the field, you know, is confronting, I think. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, for me, the lesson to that is that, A, you have to be constantly aware of the dynamic nature of these social processes. But second is that we can't just do an experiment of one program and then say it works or it doesn't. Um, There has to be more of a learning mentality rather than we're gonna experiment on a discrete intervention. So if you wanna try a new intervention or policy reform, um, I think experimentation is important, but then you get data on it, both quantitative and qualitative, um, but understand how that might change. And I think the idea is to constantly be updating your ideas and hypotheses. So if we try one thing and it works, then I think we should scale it up, but be cautious of what effects it's having on the system as a whole, and then develop new ideas to further improve it or to correct things that have gone wrong that we didn't anticipate. And so it has to be a continual process of learning. And rigorous impact evaluation has a part to play in that, but it's not that be all and end all of a really robust learning agenda that takes into account the rapidly changing environments in which we're working. And I think certain types of programs um, can be better informed by these one-off randomized trials of development than others. And so I think in environments where there's uh, significant uh, political sensitivities to deal with and where there might be pushback in that regard, then I think you need to be much more careful of the types of challenges that you mentioned. Um, but in others, like how do, what's the best way to get people to sleep under insecticide-treated bed nets in malaria endemic regions? Um, I think that those that you have longer time period over which people are going to adjust. And I think 
figuring out the best distribution model and the best incentive structures and best pricing to get people to actually use the bed nets is something that probably has more stable effects. Uh, obviously, needs to be revisited, but um, not as frequently as something in a highly politically sensitive environment. So that's what I'd say about the practical application of these tools is that we should try to make them as um, as amenable to constant iteration and experimentation rather than just big one-off experiments that take a couple of years. But then in, in terms of the theory, um, you're right, it's, it's more difficult to kind of have a theoretical or conceptual understanding of the world and project that onto numerous cultures uh, and norm sets. And I think there are some theories that do have broad applicability about human behavior. I think a very easy example to point to is that there's a growing body of evidence, um, which you know maybe is already intuitive that uh, you know actors in, in public sector systems and actors in general respond to credible and significant incentives. Whether that's you know those are monetary incentives, incentives around punishment or intrinsic motivation um, in areas where the public the service delivery systems are failing, introducing credible and significant incentives, I think, works. And that's a theoretical kind of insight that can inform a lot of decisions. Um, but more broadly, I'm actually highly, highly skeptical of um, generalizable theories around development and human behavior, in part because I think that, you know, we're fundamentally looking for our uh, local answers to local solutions, uh, local answers to local problems. Um, and context matters so much for that. And that's part of what uh, motivates ID Insights work is that I think that previously, and even the status quo today in, in development research, is to look for generalizable solutions um, and say that this is how people think about savings, or this is how people think about access to healthcare and you know payment of user fees or any other issue. Um, whereas I think that we need to design experiments uh, and learning agendas to inform specific decisions in a particular context and time. Um, and not to say that, okay, this program worked in the Philippines, so now we're going to go see if it works in India and Kenya. Um, I think that's you know, a fool's errand to try to find uh, globalize, generalizable global solutions, and that we need to focus our learning agendas around just informing local decisions, in part because it is hard, I think, to build a generalizable theory about how people interact in any given sector um, in very different countries and contexts. So that's that's really fascinating, and, and it's something that I think maybe perhaps is hard for people to understand because they assume that, well, we're evaluating something and then it's going to acquire this kind of clinical uh, truth. We're going to get some clinical truth, which right. is universal, and, and or like we're going to get feedback that's going to say, well, this program didn't work, so therefore it can't work ever anywhere, you know, right. and, and – um, but what you're saying is very qualitatively different that really, if I'm hearing this right, that what we're talking about is a strategy for program uh, – process improvement that is contextual and that it almost it's like a smarter way of doing anything really is to just have this careful evaluative process that goes on alongside it that's embedded in the work. Do, am I hearing that right? That's 100% right. Yeah. 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 And David, just to give you a great example of this, it's not just around does something, a program that works in India, does that work in Kenya? It's much more granular than that. So there's this phenomenal experiment recently. So the in, in Kenya, they're trying to figure out whether hiring contract teachers, so these are like, you know, lower paid, lower educated teachers and the government teachers, whether hiring contract teachers would increase student learning. Um, and so there was first an experiment that showed that it worked, working with an, basically they had these NGO managed contract teachers. And it showed that it improved, and they sent them to government schools, and it showed that it improved student test scores. And so the initial impulse is to say contract teachers work, period. Then a more nuanced person would say, no, 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 contract teachers work in Kenya, period. But then these researchers came along and said, well, it probably depends on who's managing the contract teachers, how well their incentives are enforced, um, and that could have a huge effect. And so what they did is they actually ran a randomized controlled trial and what they did was they had the identical program in the identical set of schools, but in half of those schools, they randomly chose World Vision, an NGO, to manage the contract teachers. And in the other half of the schools, they randomly chose the government to manage the contract teachers. 
and the findings are extremely stark. The, the, in the identical programs, identical schools, if the NGO managed the contract teachers, you see huge gains in student learning. And when the government managed them, you see literally zero gains in student <laughs> learning. And so this idea that yeah. you know, context matters, it matters in very, very specific granular ways, not just geographically and across time, but also in terms of who's implementing the program. So if you study something that works in an NGO, you can't then say, okay, the government should scale this up because the government has different processes, different bureaucratic structures, different management capabilities um, that might not translate those findings. And I think that you're absolutely right that we have to be really, really critical and thoughtful about how we extrapolate um, findings from studies. And then that has significant implications for how we actually set forth a learning agenda to improve processes because we can't rely on saying, oh, this study showed X and now we're going to implement it in all these different places, in all these different disparate actors. So, so one of the things that's also just very impressive about the organization that you've built is is how you you're now able to actually work in in many different places in the globe so rapidly and I wonder if you could just give our listeners a sense of that scale because you're actually working um, uh, it's fair to characterize your work as worldwide right at this moment is that is that is that true yeah so we are working I mean a young organization really just about a year and a half old but uh, we've grown tremendously and we're working you know Cambodia India Uganda, Zambia, and then a number of other projects um, throughout Africa. Uh, but India, Uganda, and Zambia are kind of our hubs. Uh, and working across a range of sectors, everything from anti-corruption in India with the government to agriculture, health, education, sanitation, access to finance, clean energy. Um, and, you know, I think that it's been we have way more demand than we can handle. And in part, because I think there's been a lot, just a pent up appetite in the development space for this kind of approach, which I think you know, brings together the kind of rigorous uh, quantitative methods and evaluation methods um, that have been more, uh, becoming more and more popular, but then applies it in a way that is like first and foremost oriented around helping an organization make a decision on the ground. Um, and so I think because it is so focused on actually helping organizations make better decisions rather than just doing research for the sake of it, there's been a huge amount of demand and, and it's allowed us to grow rapidly and we are cautious not to grow too fast and I think as well. One of the things that is shocking, I think, or would be shock, it sh it shouldn't be shocking because we see this in the newspaper all the time. But the fact that so many government agencies are are flying blind, in essence, and that mm -hmm. some of what you're doing is just really bringing um, uh, knowledge and um, research to understand what's happening on the ground, like. I was reading the baseline report that you had written, um, I believe, for the child mal malnutrition program in Bihar. Right. And if I have this right, it's like the government's spending something like $200 million uh, a year, I guess, on this um, yep. supplemental nutrition program. And a huge percentage of it is just like missing from the equation. Am I hearing that right? That's right. Yeah. 56% <laughs> is gone to quote unquote leakage, which yeah. is the government euphemism for corruption. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, that is an astounding thing and I guess I had my question on that point was um, was that actually more stark than they had even imagined or or I mean is it a sense is it is it a situation where people know hey yeah there's a problem but then you they get your report and they're like wow we didn't realize it was it was this intense is that yeah. an experience that you have often yeah yeah so I mean in that case it was actually slightly different uh, we had a long conversation with the the head of the social welfare ministry there. And when the report came out and it was kind of on page two of the times of India for the, for that state. And, you know, he said, actually, he's like, this doesn't surprise me at all. I thought that it would be around 50% of that $200 million is, is lost to corruption. Um, he's like, so the numbers don't surprise me, but he's like, what this does is that it provides independent, very rigorous um, scientific explanation for what the amount is that no one can dispute. And now it's out there and we have to, we're forced to deal with it right. for the public. And it also highlights all the different channels through which this might be happening. 
And so it gives us a much better sense of how to tackle it as opposed to just going off of our gut instinct that, yeah, we know all this money is leaving, some is here, some is there, but we don't know how to prioritize our efforts. So I think there's, you know, from, from this minister's perspective, there's tremendous value in just having verifiable, high-quality information on something that they already knew kind of existed. And that makes it much easier for them to act, actually, um, in addition to the more granular aspects of, you know, how should we act and where based on where we think the major drivers of this corruption are coming from. And I guess you need a program culture. You need a culture in the political system that embraces that as a willingness to learn rather than a then using it for political gain against you know people running the program mm. or saying like oh my god now we have to just shut this program down yeah. i mean you can imagine if such a finding was made in the united states it would be followed with uh, well these people have to be thrown out of office the program right. should be shut down you know and and it becomes fodder for the ideological war mm-hmm. behind I, I, can you comment on on your view of that that Definitely. element yeah yeah, and that's a key point. And so one, we're very thoughtful about when we're choosing who to work with. Um, and so I don't want to give the impression that all government officials in India or Bihar are that open-minded and that learning-oriented. Um, we chose to work with this person specifically because he had called us in and said, look, I know that my department's a mess and I really want evidence to improve it. Um, and so I think that you know, cherry-picking those actors in the system that really want to learn and make better decisions um, is the first place to start. And I think that, you know, the ones that are more skeptical or aren't as learning oriented, the way to change them, A, is through activism, but I think that's better served by other people, but also just to show the world that if you have a well-intentioned leader, whether it's at an NGO or a government or social business, and then equip them with these tools, how much better things can be. And I think through that demonstration effect, you can start to influence the other people that you know might not be as open-minded or learning-oriented as the people that we work with. I was uh, I couldn't help but think that uh, you know the services that you provide could be used in so many places in the United States yeah. as well as the developing world. So <laughs> I I hope you will have some U.S. clients as well as uh, international clients for this uh, service because um, especially and especially the the philosophy you know that you're bringing to it. Uh, could you talk just a little bit? Uh, we're coming to the end of our time, but mm-hmm. I'd love to get a sense of where you see the future of ID Insight and what are some of your short-range and long-range objectives that are key to your organization's growth? Absolutely. So obviously this is something that I think about all the time. And our, our fundamental goal as an organization is to really change the way that the social sector innovates, learns from those innovations, and then improves based on those learnings. And we have, I think that, you know, our, our mission right now is to continue to show that our approach of using rigorous impact evaluation in a faster, cheaper, more client-centered, demand-driven way has tremendous potential to improve decision-making and therefore social impact. And so right now, over the next year, we're really focused on building up a body of work across NGOs, governments, and social businesses, and across Asia and Africa, to show, and across sectors, to show the versatility of this approach that we really can make much better decisions if we employ these tools uh, in a way that's oriented around helping the actual people making decisions on the ground. And I think that once we make, uh, once we build that body of, um, of demonstration cases up, uh, our real goal over the next five to seven years is to create a, a mindset shift in the big actors in the space. So that would be state governments in India, national governments in Africa, World Bank, Gates Foundation, DFID, USAID, um, and get all of those big actors to integrate these types of approaches to learning and decision making based on evidence into their organizations. Uh, and I think that would be the biggest win for us is if, you know, after 10 years, I didn't say it's not needed as much because a lot of the big organizations have integrated this into their, um, 
into their operations and a lot of the social businesses that are smaller and emerging are thinking in this way as well. Um, and that we might inspire other copycat organizations that try to take this similar approach to serve as many organizations as possible. And so I think our end goal is really to create a change in the way organizations working in development think about how to use evidence in a nimble way to inform real-time decision-making. And that would be the biggest win for us, I think. Ah, incredibly cool vision um, that you have there. And um, I so is your organization right now organized as a public charity or is it a consulting organization? And the reason I ask this, so I want to be able to tell people, what's the best way for listeners to support your work? Yeah, so we're uh, registered as a 501c3 nonprofit in the U.S. Great. Um, And, you know, it's our our revenue is a combination of unrestricted grant money, but then also a lot of fee-for-service activities. So if we work with the government of India, they'll pay uh, a a certain portion of our fees. But we are registered as a 501c3 nonprofit. Terrific. So going to idinsight.org is a way for people to be able to contribute directly directly to you. Yeah, and they can email us uh, at inquire at idinsight.org on the website to to inquire further. And if someone wants to hire you, the same thing, click on contact and send you an email. Exactly, absolutely. Terrific, terrific. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for your passion and your creativity in this work. It's 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 really something, and um, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. And I'm I'm looking forward to doing another one of these uh, in the future, where we catch up with you and uh, find out what you have learned in the interim. Yeah, I'd love to do it, Dave. This was a lot of fun, and uh, you had some really insightful questions that I enjoyed thinking about. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.